0: Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grumbacher and the time is right. Welcome today's guest, a strong and powerful Dan Egan. Dan, are you ready to do this? Let's do it. Excellent. Let's do this. Dan is the Director of Investing and Behavioral Finance at Betterment. He is a published author, a lecturer at New York University, the London School of Economics, and London Business School. I'm excited to have you on. Dan, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do.
1: Sure. Uh, So... Let's see. Um, I live in New York. I have a wife and a three year old kid, uh, which means that my schedules are incredibly full and (laughs) trying to prioritize and um, stay on top of what like is the best use of my time is a is a real challenge. It's a good challenge, but it's a real challenge Um, at Betterment. I'm in charge of the behavioral side of things. So Betterment's an online financial advisor trying to do for most of us what generally only the high net worth people have access to. Um, sort of more sophisticated tax strategies, portfolio management strategies, et cetera. And one of our big challenges is doing that through a website and smartphone apps in a way that people find intuitive and easy to use where they can get good advice um, whenever they want it at 11 p.m. at night. And it's still good advice. So I work with financial planners and software engineers to figure out how to deliver that advice in a way that all of us are going to appreciate.
0: Nice. Well, I think that that's awesome. And... Just what, what just popped into my head was how do you take what I have to imagine are millions of good ideas and boil it down to the ones that you finally tried to deploy and, and put into practice?
1: There is a combination of what people want and what people need. Uh, so there, one of the interesting things about financial advice generally is that we don't know what the advice would be. right? Like part of the reason we go to a doctor is we don't know what medicine we should be taking part of the reason people want financial advice is they're like, I don't know if I'm doing things right. I'm not sure that I'm, I'm making the most of my money. You're the expert, you tell me. Um, so there's a combination of helping look, people look at their finances and say, um, you know, here's how we can kind of improve um, the tax treatment of this or here's where actually if you wanna reach that goal, you're gonna need to save a little bit more. And it's pretty easy to pull out those things that make it easier for people to make the right decisions. Um, there are things that they're going to want. you know, one of the the tough things is generally speaking, there are very, there, are, there aren't many people who are saving too much. Um, there are some of them, but most of us right. are just not saving enough.
0: Nice. Okay. And I, we are recording this on, on Monday. And I believe that, The How I Built This episode about Betterment just came out yesterday, and I have not had a chance to listen to it yet, but if you would, give us a little bit about Betterment's origin story.
1: Absolutely. So, Betterment was founded, uh, the company was sort of registered way back in 2008, Um, and obviously we all remember 2008 was not a fun time to be in financial services. Right. It actually took two years to go from the company being founded to taking client money. There's a lot of licensing and regulatory oversight, and as you go through before you're allowed to manage people's money and give them financial advice. So it actually took two years. Uh, Betterment opened for business in late 2010, and it was founded off the idea that um, there's a lot of financial services uh, where advice is sold, not bought. And you kind of like you have to pay for um, a fund or some other commission-based fee that's not usually built with the consumer's best interest in mind. So John Stein, who's the CEO, founded the company to aim to be the first sort of public company that, who is explicitly a fiduciary financial advisor for their clients. Um, started taking money in late 2010 and kept expanding what we were able to do from individual retirement accounts to 401ks to different investment strategies over time. I joined in 2013, so I've been with Betterment about five years now. I was employee number 20. Uh, When I joined, we had 15,000 customers and under $100 million in assets under management. We now serve just under half a million people and have about $15 billion in assets under management. So it's been really, really good growth. Um, We've kind of started up the whole idea of being an online financial advisor or a really digital financial advisor where people get the same advice that they would get from speaking with a, a human. Um, but a lot of it is deployed through a website or a smartphone app, something that's always on that they can access at any time.
0: Well, that is remarkable and, and very impressive growth. And the number of people that I think that I who, who who's really to say if the people that you've been helping would have had access to this or would be saving money had you not been there? I guess that's an impossible question to answer, but certainly filling a very, very important need. So this idea of being I can f- say
1: uh, one of the, the nice things, every once in a while, we do get emails or letters from clients letting us know that we've made a difference and that they really appreciate it. Um, and that goes a long way.
0: Yeah, no doubt. That's at the end of the day, what what's what 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 it's all about. So, this idea of being a fiduciary advisor has is, is been very very hot over the past year or so. And but it sounds like um, you were way ahead of the curve. So, what is really the problem that Betterment was trying to address? It was being that advice was being sold, not bought necessarily. So, just trying to bring financial planning to kind of democratizing financial planning. Is that a good way to put it?
1: Yeah, I think there are two components. Uh, One of them is using technology to drive the price down further. um, And not a lot of existing firms were interested in driving the price down further from where it had been using technology. And another one is uh, avoiding conflicts of interest. So you might not be surprised that if you go to a lot of the large name firms, um, you'll find that Goldman Sachs believes you should use Goldman Sachs products and Schwab believes that you should use Schwab products. And oftentimes they'll say that they give you advice for free, but then they really want you to go into their financial products. And so you can never really be sure if they're giving you the best products or they're just giving you the products that serve them the best. Um, The same thing is true of brokerages where you can get either very inexpensive trades or sometimes now even free trades. Um, As we've seen with various social media things going on now, if you're not paying that company, you are not the client of the company, you're the product. They're selling your attention, they're selling your trade some other way. And this sets up for some bad incentives, where they have the incentive to invest and develop ways to make you hold more cash, or to trade more, or to put you into even worse products. So the company was founded under the idea that we want people to pay us for independence, not having a conflict of interest, and helping them make the most of their money, including driving costs down by using technology to make it better.
0: Got it. Well, that makes sense. So what you are working on is behavioral finance. Um, Is there a quick way to define that? Or maybe just when people say, well, what's that? What do you tell people that you do?
1: Uh, It's just assigning things for real human beings. Uh, We all know that, you know, we can be a little bit impatient. Sometimes we have a hard time with self-control, especially when we have got a chocolate ice cream in front of us. Uh, (laughs) We have a hard time caring about the distant future and, you know, financing investing is complicated. It involves a lot of math. So what I do is know where the biggest obstacles to an investor being successful are and help design our services so that we navigate around them so that they don't end up. Um, crashing onto the rocks, so to speak. A lot of that's just minor stuff about understanding how people perceive risk and perceive markets and and keeping them focused on the future, about the plan that they need to make to be successful in the future, rather than contemplating the last week's performance in the markets.
0: Right. So trying to build that or trying to improve behavior through design is, I think, uh, something that I saw on on perhaps your, your, your blog or the website. So can you talk a little bit about some of those design elements?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They're oftentimes um, they're subtle until you start seeing them and then you see them everywhere. So one really easy one is the use of color. How is color used on the website and color? uh, We actually have parts of our brain dedicated to just processing color very quickly. And you can think about our brain as kind of like this layered system where the top layer is your neocortex, the thing that you use to play chess and do math and all of the, the high order human function. And the further down you go, the more visceral you get. And where, you're, you're, where you process color is a little bit down from your neocortex. So it's kind of like a, a shortcut into the part of your brain that experiences emotion. So generally speaking, if you're gonna see something on a screen, That's a pleasant blue or green. That's a nice color. That makes us think of grass and forests. It's calming. Um, It's it's a little bit happiness. Or the sky and the sea. On the other hand, if you see yellow, orange, or red, those are danger colors. That's poisonous animals or blood. And so um, when you're looking at a screen generally of markets and the markets had a a down day, it's generally going to be in red. It's a danger color. It's trying to tell you that you should be really scared of something. Um, So when you start looking at how color is used, um, a lot of brokerage sites use color to give you emotional information about the past, about what happened over the past day or the past week or the past month, things that you really can't do anything about. I often liken it to a weather forecast for the past week. Um, It's not that it's wrong, it's just not useful. So a lot of us go in and, and look at this sort of either bright red or bright green screen And it's gonna take a shortcut to our emotional centers and either make us feel good or bad about the past. On the other hand, some sites are much better at using those same colors, red and green, to give us emotional content about the future. Are you on track or off track um, to hit your plan? Google Maps uses it to indicate how smooth the journey ahead of you is gonna be. They'll often depict congestion in red and smooth sailing in lighter colors. So the use of color, and it's very subtle, but what does the designer get out of using that color? Um, if the is trying to trigger a emotional reaction to what's going on, you know, you can think about what action are they spurring. In the case of Google Maps, they want you to go around the congestion. They want you to avoid the problem. In the case of online brokerages, they want you to trade because you're worried, because that's when they make money. So the use of color is a great example of how you can um, design things to spur on Good behaviors that are focused on the future, or bad behaviors
0: that are focused on the past. Nice, I like it. That certainly makes sense. Okay, and so you've got this awesome technology which keeps getting better and better and better. And I wouldn't need to get into artificial intelligence too much, but how do you take this very, very valuable tool and then adapt it to an individual?
1: Well, um, this, this might surprise you, but I'm actually a human being too. Um, and my, uh, my, my family is, and my friends are, and you get a lot of good feedback from using the things you build yourself and trying to make it better for your friends and family. So, uh, we at Betterment are very dedicated to listening to our customers. We have a, a large uh, array of channels through which they can call in and kind of tell us, Hey, this is working. This isn't working. Oh, um, you know, I was, I was trying to achieve something and I wasn't able to because of the software. So those are really nice high fidelity feedback loops that keep us focused on them. And that voice comes through not just sort of in the aggregate and quantitative ways, but from those letters that clients write to us or when um, my wife writes in and says, hey, listen, I was trying to do this thing and the app wouldn't let me. That really was frustrating. Um, so those kind of feedback loops from real people um, where, you know, I'm a client, um my friends and family or clients it helps a lot to keep you focused on what's going to improve the service for real people
0: nice it seems to me that the and, and obviously you as well um that the more you can educate somebody into the different biases that we have the different blind spots we have the better and i know that you've worked and probably do spend a lot of time helping people develop this personal this idea of a personal investor policy statement Um, Mm -hmm. how, how does that fit in? How, how often, how challenging is it to get people to actually do the exercise? And I would have to imagine that once they do, it's really going to benefit and probably increase their success as an investor.
1: Absolutely. Um, and I think that's one of those great examples of kind of writing out a plan for your future rather than the past. Um, I think number one, the far too often people come, um, into investing in finance, looking for too much of a good thing, um, looking for easy returns with low risk or um, the ability to just kind of have some fun and, and get rich quickly. Writing out some kind of a rational plan that says, listen, there's going to be good times and there's going to be bad times. Here's how I'm going to react. Here's how I'm going to prepare for that ahead of time. It, it gives you um, a lot of, a lot of um, ballast for when things get rocky, either because of your financial situation or because of what's going on in markets. Um, That's not necessarily enough though, right? Like um, all of us can kind of like put out a diet plan where we eat 500 fewer calories per day, but you need to have mechanisms that encourage and reinforce it and and guardrail you from making bad decisions in the moment. Well, I think an investment policy statement is good because it makes explicit that which you think you should be doing, How do you bring that back in when markets are scaring you? How do you have it inform things when you and your spouse disagree about it? And that's where I think, um, there's a lot of nuance to the difference between financial education, which is kind of like the abstract knowing of something and creating and designing systems that actually help you achieve it. Um, so one example that I use is that, um, I'm probably, a lot of us are probably on social media, um, Facebook, Twitter too much and i could either do this thing where i like track how much i do it and then i get grumpy and guilty with myself when i learn that i'm on it more than i should be what i've actually ended up doing is I, i have other apps that block me from using them so i say like i'm only able to look at social media for two hours a day in these specific two hours and otherwise it blocks me and that's a great example of kind of like designing your way out of a problem where you're able to set up systems that guardrail your own behavior so that you don't have to exert willpower in the moment When it's hardest to exert
0: willpower. I love that idea of putting in place guardrails, because just like you're saying, willpower is a diminishing, uh, it's a diminishing asset. And um, anyway, so I think that's excellent. Well, Dan, Savage Nation is ready for your difference making tip. What do you have for them?
1: Uh, I would say always, you know, when you wake up at the beginning of every day, be intentional about how you're going to live it, write write the key things down, three to five key things that you want to make sure you achieve that day, and then, you know, check them off and feel feel very accomplished when you do. Um, one of the mistakes that I think myself and a lot of people make is that we let other people and the world decide our schedule and our priorities for us, and we're always a lot happier and we're going to achieve a lot more when at the beginning of every day, we set out exactly what we're hoping to achieve that day.
0: Well, that is great stuff. That definitely gets a Come on. Come on. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you?
1: Uh, I'm on Twitter at Daniel underscore Egan, or my website is dpegan.com.
0: Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Dan your appreciation and share today's show. The friend who also appreciates good ideas, follow him on Twitter and go check out his website as well, and I'll list both of those in the notes of the show. Thank you again, Dan. My pleasure. Thank you. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!